All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Standard Issue for All Women. Hello and welcome to episode 129 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am going to kick off with a question. What are three-month-old babies keeping in their pockets? It's ludicrous, isn't it? What are they putting in there? Rusks. I don't know, the keys. (laughs) Gary suggested that maybe it was for their favourite stone and I was like, they're not otters. (laughs) But yeah, given it's a struggle to find clothes for full-grown women with pockets, it's clearly because the babies have taken them all. Absolutely. I saw a baby not that long ago that appeared to have cargo-like type trousers (laughs) on with loads on and I was like, what does it need all those pockets for? What does it need all those pockets for? Anyway, I'm guessing you've seen a baby. I finally got to meet my niece, Harper Rose, and she is delightful. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I also saw a baby because I met little Lyra, didn't I? Oh, babies everywhere. And that's literally all I do. Somebody asked me the other day what I do now, and I said, well, I look at babies and I go to funerals. That's literally been my (laughs) entire social life. It's a circle of life. Mm. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, if everybody I know hadn't cancelled their wedding, I could have crammed a couple of those in as well. Honestly, oh. Mickey, you are so selfish. I know. We have to break the podcast for some sobbing at the Noonan household. <laughs> anyway, let's not do that. Later on, I catch up with Maeve McLenaghan, investigative journalist and host of brilliant podcast, The Tip-Off, to talk about what she discovered when she started looking into the number of people dying homeless on Britain's streets. I speak to American comedian Kate McCabe about her hopes and fears about next week's election. Next week? Oh my God, it's a nail biter. Uh, oh, I don't know. I actually think Biden's going to win now. Oh, that's good. Well, yeah. I mean, it's better. <laughs> it's the better. I have basically since since he got COVID. That's what changed my mind. But we can talk about more of this when I'm talking to Kate. Yeah, keep that powder dry. Because it's men, men and more men in Rated or Dated as we watch Clint Eastwood go full Western, despite it being World War Two in Kelly's Heroes. But first, lost laptops, hungry children and excellent lovies. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue stink. Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Top tier podcasting from tier... I know. What tier are we in now, Mick? I have no fucking idea. Tears of fears, tracks of my tears, tears of a clown and the tears of hungry children. But more on that last one later. So, as you know, US election is but six days away and I'll yeah. be discussing the ins and outs of that with Kate later. But something we won't have time to talk about, but is well worth a mention, is the story about Hunter Biden which appeared in the New York Post earlier this month. Hunter, if you don't know, is the only surviving child of former vice president and likely next president, Joe Biden. And although we generally refer to people by their surnames, I'm going to call him Hunter throughout this to save confusing him with his dad. Seems fair. Hunter has been considered newsworthy before now, largely due to his links with the Ukraine. But the Post story carried a whole range of new claims, and I must stress they are claims, and photographs, most of which appear to stem from the discovery of a laptop belonging to the 50-year-old. Just to be clear, the only thing in that sentence you shouldn't (laughs) consider to be in quote marks is his age. The piece claimed that he had tried to sell access to his dad and that photographs had been found of him in what appeared to be various stages of a drugs binge. It came with a story, and I cannot stress this enough, I am not making this up, about a laptop being taken into a repair shop in Delaware where the blind owner was unable to identify exactly who dropped it off. This is a setup to a joke, Hannah. It's not it true. It really is. <laughs> Whoever it was, they apparently never returned, and somehow a copy of the hard drive then made its way to the Murdoch tabloid after apparently passing through the hands of Steve Bannon and Rudolph Giuliani. What a game of pass the parcel that is. (laughs) I know, maybe that's what Giuliani was looking for in his trousers, but that is another conversation (laughs) altogether. Other people may have been involved, and given the company they are in, I can only assume that list includes Thanos and Jeffrey Epstein's ghost. Wowzers. The Post was clearly supposed to turn people away from voting for Biden. Something that would have likely backfired given it failed to produce a smoking gun or indeed a smoking crack pipe. (laughs) But more obviously, because Hunter Biden is actually quite a sympathetic character, despite being a rich kid of a famous dad. His mother and sister died in the same accident when he was a child and his brother died of cancer in 2016. 
And his dad, well, he's been working in politics for nearly half a century, meaning he's likely been busy for a lot of his son's life. But perhaps most importantly, Hunter is also an addict. And if I am in any way representative of a left-leaning voter, I personally find a photo of a presidential candidate's son in the throes of that way less offensive than, say, a photograph of a Trump kid over the corpse of an animal they just killed. Yep, agreed. All of which means this story should have died a quiet death. However, in charge Twitter and Facebook to teach those people who've never heard of the Streisand effect what it means. Give us a quick explanation of the Streisand effect, please, Dunleavy. Barbara Streisand attempted to get rid of a story about her in the media and only succeeded in making that story much, much better read than it actually was. It's like saying get rid of this and people saying get rid of what and having a massive arrow pointing towards it, right? Absolutely. Okay. You know, it's the, it's the theory of why people end up seeing films they would never have seen because people are standing outside holding signs saying down with this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Twitter prevented people from posting links to the story or the photographs, something Jack Dorsey later said was due to new regulations on the spread of misinformation. Although he claimed the company's handling of it had been, and I quote, not great. I love that he's, he's condensing those characters even, even when he's making yeah. comments. <laughs> Given that the at Team Trump account was actually locked during this time, I'd say no shit, mate. <laughs> According to The Guardian, Twitter's policy chief, apologies if I mispronounced this, Vijaya Guard, that policy has now been weakened. And to be clear, the word weakened was not in quotes. That's The Guardian's word, but more on that in a bit. Facebook followed suit, putting restrictions on people trying to link the article due to, quote, questions about its validity. Aside from the obvious result of making the story way more talked about than it would have been if the social media giants had just stayed out of it, they managed to piss off several groups of people. Let's go back to the once great Guardian to find out who they were. First up, it appears to be Republicans and right-wingers angry that they didn't get to post what they wanted on Twitter and even more angry that the tech firms were protecting Biden. And I can confirm they were indeed very angry. Mm -hmm. Secondly, and this is a direct quote from The Guardian, even non-conservatives criticised the choice to limit the spread of the article as one that will play into the right-wing narrative that big tech firms censor conservative views. So was there anybody else concerned about this development? Not according to the Guardian article, which we were all free to retweet, despite the fact that it was itself what I'd call inaccurate, given it failed to point out there was a huge number of people concerned that there's something intrinsically dangerous with allowing Twitter and Facebook to decide which articles in which titles are fit to be read by the great unwashed. It's not even a new topic. Exactly. Even if they are private companies and as such entitled to do whatever the hell they want on their own platforms. Mm. But this third group doesn't seem to matter. Although we presumably will if The Guardian ever finds itself in need of defence after falling foul of such rules. That'll be an interesting day, wouldn't it, Hannah? I've got so much to say about The Guardian, but I think its biggest problem is that because it now wants to get American readers in an attempt to up its readership. Stuff about America is now covered for America and not covered for the UK. Which is mad when you look at how various news outlets in America have just sort of fallen into a ever-decreasing spiral, right? Yeah, absolutely that. I mean, they want to be the New York Times, but to be fair, the New York Times are struggling to be the New York Times <laughs> at the moment. So I don't really know what The Guardian's playing at. 
But Hannah, could you spare a thought for the Tories? Because they have had a tough old week denying yeah. poor children food. Didums, right? Mm-hmm. So last week, are you, are you having a little cry? I am. So last week, MPs rejected Labour's motion to extend free school meals until Easter 2021 by 322 votes to 261. That 80-strong Tory majority at work there with only five, count them, five blue ribbon wearers voting to stop kids going hungry. Man New in England striker, philanthropist and prince among men Marcus Rashford continued his fight to end child food poverty. To mixed responses... One canny wag slash virulent ring piece, followed by nearly 10,000 people, by the way, tweeted this. Give Marcus an inch and he will take a mile. It will never be enough for him. He is carving a career out of all this. <laughs> As opposed to, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of shithousery to tackle here and it's repeated across a lot of other social media posts from whatever the collective noun is for wank knuckles. But yeah, the gist... Rashford wanted school meals extended over the summer and got that inch, in inverted commas. And what? Now he wants children living in poverty that's nothing of their own doing to be able to eat every day? Outrageous! Did those stupid hungry kids not fatten up over the summer so they could get through the winter? (laughs) No, no, they did not, because they're not fucking hedgehogs. Also, Marcus Rashford already has a career, given he's pretty... I was going to say handy, but footsie is probably more accurate with a football. He's doing all right. But man, imagine if he was. Marcus Rashford, as a community's representative in the House of Commons, he would totally get my vote ahead of a wagon load of the self-serving, trough-snuffling, waste of taxpayer cash currently taking up places on the bench. I'd go so far as to say he has a promising career in politics should he want it, but he does believe in equity and fairness, so that probably counts him out. I've also seen a lot of, well, if Premier footballers all gave a million quid out of their outrageous salaries, then maybe no kids would have to go hungry. Yeah, but one, their job is to football. Two, Rashford and a lot of other Premier League footballers have donated tonnes of cash to charity. Three, the point is, this shouldn't be charity. It's the government's job to look after society. And four, by that thinking, these people believe high earners should be taxed more to help out those in need. I agree! More money for everyone! Yeah, and yet these meat clowns voted in the Tories. Again. Okay, let's put that other definition of charity, which Hannah spoke about a couple of weeks ago, into play. Even if we go down into the sewer to believe that all of these kids have benefit cheating, lazy ass parents, drinking, smoking, gambling, and, you know, generally just throwing fivers onto fires for the lols, none of that is the fault of the kids. And there are still children going hungry in the sixth richest country in the world. Ben Bradley, MP for Mansfield, an area which has the second highest child poverty rating for kids under 16 in the county of Nottinghamshire, so well done there, Ben, said, Extending free school meals to school holidays passes responsibility for feeding kids away from parents to the state. It increases dependency. I mean, it's a tale as old as time. We don't want people to become dependent on the state. Is something you hear a lot when the government denies funding for human services which handily for the government forgets that these people and this money are meant to work for us. Okay, there is a heartwarming aspect to this, and that is that vast swathes of the public rallied behind Rashford's campaign and come Friday morning, his timeline was awash with pinned beacons of hope as businesses and councils offered to feed and support children over half term. Like I say, utterly heartwarming. But we can't normalise this government's moral bankruptcy. 
And yeah, I'm not an idiot. I do know that charity has always existed to fill gaps that shouldn't need to be filled by charity. It is common, but it shouldn't be normal. Finally, in further proof that 2020 has lost its tiny mind, this tweet happened. If the government can subsidise Eat Out to Help Out, not being seen to give poor kids lunch in the school holidays looks mean and is wrong. The tweeter? Nigel Farage. So yeah, I agree with Nigel Farage. Holy mother of fuck, 2020 is weird. Fuck. Yes, it really is. Periodically, I'll agree with something Piers Morgan says and then I have to go and have a shower. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I did see, uh, and actually, a really good protest. There's obviously been a lot of shouting about this on social media. And while I agree that outrage is good, I think actually channeled outrage is way better. Agree. It's easy to put a tweet out. It's not easy to to actually do action. And I saw that some people had taken a load of empty plates and left them outside their local Conservative Association. And I thought that was quite a striking image. So well done, those people. Good news, Mick? Oh, fuck yes. Don't mind if I do. On Sunday night, the Olivier Awards were finally handed out in a virtual ceremony hosted by Jason Manford. The event was initially supposed to be held in April, but checks notes coronavirus mm-hmm. which would explain why for example there was nothing for clint dyer or race ball for death of england which was staged after the eligibility period winners included as ever most of the stuff we went to see at the theater mix yes such as dear evan hansen and present laughter but the big standard issue cheer goes to sharon d clark who picked up her third olivier award this time for her role in the young vic's death of a salesman which we also went to see And she was, as ever, magnificent. She certainly was. Congratulations to all the winners and also to us for being excellent arbiters of taste. Well done us, Hannah. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where the rolling back of women's bodily autonomy continues apace. Let's head to Poland, where the already draconian laws around abortion just got tighter. On October the 22nd, a panel made up almost entirely of men, yep, my no surprises in sexism of the week continues, voted to outlaw abortions in cases of severe and fatal fetal abnormality. The excellent Abortion Without Borders estimates that this will affect around a thousand abortions that up until now were performed legally in Poland each year, meaning those women and their families will be forced to endure the pain of carrying a non-viable pregnancy to term, or they'll have to travel elsewhere for the care that they need. In theory, abortion is still allowed in Poland in cases of rape, incest or danger of death to the mother, but abortions are never performed under any of these grounds. If all this is making you want to rage donate, then asn.org.uk forward slash donate is the place to go and support the brilliant work of the Abortion Support Network. Meanwhile, over in America, the almost certain confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court on Monday, which is today as we record, represents a power grab come potential last gasp by Republicans. Because whether or not Trump overcomes Biden in the election, and like we've mentioned earlier, you can hear Hannah and Kate McCabe's thoughts on this later, a sixth conservative on the nine-member Serve for Life court is bad news for, well, a lot of stuff, but pertinently for this SOTW, Roe versus Wade. Despite her strong opinions on, say, abortion... Uh, She's anti-choice, again, no surprise, surprise, being known, and indeed being the reason Republicans nominated her, Coney Barrett has so far refused to publicly answer questions that might indicate her opinion, as a judge or individual, on massive matters. 
including declining to answer whether the Constitution could be interpreted to allow for abortion to be a crime punishable by death. So, yeah, that's fun. It's fun, isn't it, Hannah? It's fun. I mean, yeah, let's go back to the hungry children and say that a lot of women who will be prevented from having an abortion will end up with a hungry mouth to feed, but then that will be her fault, right? Yeah. It's pro-life to a point. Yeah, pro-life till it's actually out in the world and then it's some other fucker's problem. Hello, I am joined on the phone by investigative journalist Maeve McLenaghan, author of new book, No Fixed Abode, Life and Death Among the UK's Forgotten Homeless, a brilliant but brutal look at what is happening on Britain's streets today. Maeve, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So let's start out with what you've covered in a preface, and that is that the pandemic meant that suddenly that magic money tree was discovered and shaken and people living on the streets were housed. A lot of people and indeed editorials I saw in newspapers were asking why, if that was possible then, it hadn't been done before. Yeah, absolutely. So for years we were told, oh, this is too big an issue, it's too complex, there's not the money to deal with it. And then, you know, there was this decree that came down from central government that councils have 48 hours to get people in from the streets, um, people who were rough sleeping. And it was incredibly successful. And a recent study showed that it saved uh, well over 260, I think, lives um, by doing that, by making sure people were in and safe. The idea that homelessness or rough sleeping is not solvable was kind of disproven pretty rapidly. I guess it's worth pointing out that there is a huge difference, and this is something that you cover in your book, between providing short-term shelter and sorting out homelessness as a crisis. For sure. So the fact that people were in, you know, hotels and things was life saving, like I say, keeping them kind of well and safe and able to self isolate. But it's a far cry from people having long term secure homes. And it also doesn't touch on the other forms of homelessness, the kind of hidden homelessness, as it's often called, people sofa surfing, people staying in emergency accommodation for long periods of times or in squats or, you know, with friends and family. There's a huge range of people out there and those sleeping rough on the streets that are just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see in the coming months. Is this a turning point moment where we can say no more people will be rough sleeping in the UK? Or will we see as many people fear that, you know, that's just going to swing backwards and potentially become even worse? Well, I've got to say the the handful of times I've ventured into London proper since the pandemic started obviously there are still people on the streets and staying on a pandemic note for a moment the longer term effects of this particularly as we go into winter are going to have a huge impact on people who are on the streets because people aren't carrying cash anymore or going out as much there's a new fear that comes with the pandemic and maybe not wanting to get poorly so I think it's going to have a huge impact on the day-to-day lives of people who are like hand to mouth that's right so you know, I followed lots of grassroots organisations, kind of soup kitchens and um, kind of emergency shelter organisations for the course of the research of the book. And many of them, you know, at the start of the pandemic, didn't know if they were allowed to keep providing their services because they mm-hmm. thought, you know, this is this is us gathering in a place, encouraging people to gather. They managed to get around that and find ways to do it safely. But they've been telling me that they're seeing new faces all the time, every right. week. People that have fallen into rough sleeping that would never have found themselves in that position before and they're really really worried as the winter rolls around because normally we rely on this network of 
winter shelters, which are often church halls or similar. People rotate around those each night. But that involves people staying in, in dormitory-style accommodation, sleeping on the floor next to each other, essentially. And that just can't happen in the pandemic. So there's real questions as the bad weather rolls in and potentially a second wave hits. Where do these people go and how do they stay safe? A lot of what you cover in the book actually does address this. But obviously, I mean, it's the phrase of this year, isn't it? Unprecedented times. No one knows how we're supposed to deal with this. But let's talk about no fixed abode outside of the pandemic. And it's basically your quest, really. You discovered that there was no existing data on the number of people who were dying homeless, even though it's a horrifically high number. So you decided to create that database yourself. So I guess my first question is why? And my second question is how? Sure. So I'm I'm an investigative journalist. So I'm naturally quite curious mm-hmm. and I don't often like to take no for an answer um, <laughs> it might be that other times you know I've looked for a data set and when it doesn't exist I'll think okay so I can't do that story let me look at something else but there was something about realizing that people were dying and homeless and and nobody was taking notice that really stuck with me and indeed my editors the Bureau of Investigative Journalism why in the winter of 2017 2018 kept reading these one-off horrifying news reports about people dying in horrible circumstances unnecessary deaths and assumed that somebody was keeping track of that and thought if you know if more people are experiencing homelessness then the question is are more people dying homeless and then it took weeks of calling coroner's offices and hospitals police offices councils local government central government Everyone assumed somebody else was keeping that data. Mm-hmm. And when I realised that, OK, I'm the only one that seems to have thought of this, it became a kind of moral imperative. And so the book charts that journey of, of how I went about that, working with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and their Bureau local team, which has this network of journalists all around the country. They all rallied together and they told me of cases where they heard them. I went out and spoke to... GPs and soup kitchens and homeless outreach groups and shelters and slowly, slowly managed to gain enough trust that people started to tell me when and how people were dying. Over the course of 18 months of counting, got to this horrifying figure that at least 800 people had died in those 18 months. And that was sadly a a huge underestimate, I imagine, because it was a jigsawing. Um, of of data and then in the book I wanted to go deeper and tell some of those stories I thought it wasn't enough to just say this is the number I really wanted to understand who are these people how have we let this happen how have they come to be here and, and what lessons could we learn to make sure that that doesn't happen again the personal stories of the homeless people that you spoke to and indeed those like John who runs street kitchens and Jim who's got his warehouse helping people out in Brighton who have been homeless themselves and then made it their mission to help people in that situation are heartbreaking and heartwarming respectively but I think that personal note is so so important instead of just being given these stats that we constantly see in the newspapers of yeah it's getting worse but those stories these are individuals suffering and it really really brings it home absolutely that the kind of paradox of homelessness is that it's so visual and we see it everywhere and yet we can close our eyes and minds to it as well and so trying to address that kind of dehumanization or or empathy gap 
us um, understanding who it is we're walking past each day was a kind of um, a driving force in doing the book, I guess. You make the point that it's not a topic that politicians use to win votes. It's, you know, the, there is still that tendency to look away. I guess there's mm-hmm. there's a fear that it could be any of us because it genuinely could be any of us, but particularly the people who were already almost invisible in society anyway because they're in poverty or they've got addiction issues or the, the domestic violence is happening. That's it. I, w- I was really shocked to find the prevalence of adverse childhood experience um, having a, a, a direct correlation with people falling into homelessness. Mm-hmm. So people that are kind of carrying this trauma from their childhood and then that's often compounded by potentially by poverty um, or by bereavement or by illness or some other tipping force that means you're kind of not emotionally resilient enough and you don't have the resources and the networks around you to pick you up when you fall. And I, perhaps naively, had assumed that we lived in a society where there was a safety net that would catch you if stuff went wrong. And what I found through doing the research of the book was that almost every single strand of that net that you would assume is there has been eroded away because of just years and years of cuts. And they're services that you would never know weren't there because they're invisible until you need them. Things like um, mental health services, drug and alcohol services, you know, housing benefit rates compared to market rental rates. Um, all of these kind of yeah strands of system that mean that now if you fall, the net simply doesn't exist anymore. The stats that do exist and that do make it into the newspapers show that homelessness is a dramatically worsening crisis because of austerity and hacking cuts to services that deal with all of the things that you've just listed. And because of a housing crisis, it's all led to councils accepting fewer and fewer people as, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but homeless enough to help. There are so many people who you think, well, of course they should be able to access help and they're just not getting it. And it isn't because they're not seeking it. It's because the council are saying, now nah, you don't meet our criteria anymore. Yeah, that's the shocking thing is the bar is just getting higher and mm. higher. And then, I, you know, I was horrified to hear of um, some of the kind of catch-22 Kafka-esque elements of, of the system where you, you know, if you have... Um, mental health issues and maybe substance abuse issues which often go hand in hand if you're kind of self-medicating while on the streets and facing the horrors of, of, of life while homeless you know if you go to your mental health services they will say to you we can't treat you until you've dealt with your addiction issues and you go to the substance abuse provision and they will say well there's no point us helping you until you've dealt with your mental health problems and so you're just stuck in this in-between space where the services technically are there but they're just not available to you and like you say councils incredibly cash-strapped have had funding from central government just sliced over the years have had all of their all of their but much of their council house housing stock sold off during right to buy and not being able to replace it Mm -hmm. because of the um the way that the right to buy system was set up they just don't have places to put people or support services to support them. So they're turning people away, like you say, who you would think would be obvious candidates for support. But in reality, the support just isn't there. And that's before we even get to people who, because of things that we've touched on, because of addiction issues or because of childhood trauma or domestic violence or just run-ins with authority, don't feel they can even look for that help. Yeah, so there's absolutely, there's this kind of distrust 
of authority, which makes sense if you've been let down continually. And part of that is because people, I mean, part of the frustration of, of doing the research of the book was the more I learned, the more I found out, there are these clear moments that we know that people fall into homelessness where mm -hmm. we could support them. And that can be people leaving care, people leaving prison with no fixed abode to go to and, you know, a minimal amount of money to, to get them through to when their first universal credit payment might come in five weeks later. People leaving hospital after long bouts when they registered that they're no fixed abode. So these are moments when people might look for help from authority. And if they just get turned away at every moment of that, then it's no wonder that when a shelter opens its doors to you, you might not trust that people have your best interests at heart. If, if the system has battered you down for years, yeah, kind of getting over that chasm of distrust can be really hard and getting people to engage can be difficult. Exactly. One of the things that I think No Fixed Abode makes abundantly clear is the importance of the grassroots charities and organisations working on the ground, working with people. But the fact that people like Will, who you speak to in Stafford, who's like dedicating his life now to help by giving out tents and sleeping bags and, and running a place for people to go and just get a cup of tea and a sit down, are threatened with asbos. And there's a mm -hmm. there's a fine for begging that absolutely boggles my brain. If someone is begging, how is it expected that they can pay a fine? It feels yeah. like society doesn't want to make a space to help them. No, that's it. The, the, the logic of that beggar's belief, like you say, who Will, who's amazing, who, like you say, goes around and, and hands out tents. And oh, things, I love him. I full on love him. He's so good. He's great. And he does such amazing work, as do countless people all over the country. And he has put the letter that he got from the police warning him that he'd get an ASBO if he carried on in a frame next to a letter from the Queen or, you know, recognition from the Queen about his voluntary services. So the kind of mixed messages that he was getting was, was really confusing. But yeah, the fact that we still have a Vagrancy Act, which was created, you know, this Dickensian law from that was brought in after the, the Napoleonic Wars to discourage vagrancy, let's say. And the fact that that is still in use and still being used to prosecute people just shows the way that the system is, is set up, really. It's the idea that if you make it hard enough for people to rough sleep or to beg, then they'll somehow find an alternative. But that just is demonstrably not working because, like you say, people are, are fined and then don't have the money to pay the fine and get into all kinds of additional debt or end up going you know having prison sentences or custodial sentences because of that it's not a compassionate approach and it certainly does nothing to address the causal factors of, of why people are ending up homeless it's a way to clear people off the street who might be a kind of visual blight on our nice town centers we don't want to see people sat out when we're going shopping it makes us feel bad so let's use these laws to decriminalise that behaviour, which isn't really hurting anyone. It's just a kind of inconvenience truth of our society. Yeah, and, and like that kind of labelling it or framing it as if it's some sort of choice. I think it's Jim mm -hmm. who says, you know, if you ask a, a class full of kids, OK, put your hands up if what you want for your future is pushing all your belongings along in a shopping trolley. You know, no one's going to put their hands up. It's not mm -hmm. a choice. Yeah, absolutely. The idea that it is some kind of 
decision or somebody's made enough bad choices in their life and therefore this is the the punishment or their kind of just rewards. That was something that became all the more clear to me. The, the more people I spoke to, the more people I talked to was, yeah, p- people might have, you know, individual moments of weakness or whatever it might be, but it's actually the systemic failings that have got us into this homelessness crisis. It's not just that by chance more and more people happen to be making more and more bad decisions in their life. It's that poverty and the cuts to services and austerity have created what the UN Special Rapporteur on on Extreme Poverty called the perfect recipe for this crisis. You You couldn't think of a better combination of policies, really, to get you into this mess than than we've seen over the past decade. Yeah, you're right. It's It's a perfect storm. I'm interested to know if there was anything you went in thinking that investigating this changed your mind about. Yeah, so I had the, I guess, naive idea that that people experiencing homelessness, especially people who were sleeping rough, were completely isolated from their friends and family, were kind of cut off, social pariahs, if you like, you know, just cast adrift in life. And I found, you know, particularly in the case of a woman called Jane, whose case I, I really, um, really stayed with me and really affected me. And I spent a lot of time talking to her mum and met her children and attended her, Jane's funeral. And Will, who we spoke of previously, had, had worked for years with Jane trying to support her. And going to her funeral really struck home. You know, it was full of people that loved Jane from all yeah. kind of Um, moments of her life right to kind of present day and the fact that she was so loved and was so connected and she had friends and family that had tried to help her but the official services hadn't quite connected properly she had tried to get mental health support and because of a failure in a booking system uh, she hadn't been called back and and she ended up dying in the doorway of a bank it was just a, a real tragedy, a real death that shouldn't have happened. But speaking to her mum and her daughters and getting to know her friends and family, you know, it did open my eyes to the fact that every one of those 800 deaths leaves people devastated in its wake. And these aren't people that exist in a different realm to us, a different sphere of existence. You know, they are people's brothers, sisters, daughters, sons mothers fathers that was something that you know i should have known but but really learning that and sitting in those funerals and, and feeling the emotion of those funerals really drove that home to me it's it's a, it had me in tears that bit about well mm. all of jane's story is just so heartbreaking mm-hmm. so Maeve, let's try and end with a little bit of hope what can yeah. people who want to help do to help So there's so much. And I think part of it and part of writing the book was just opening our eyes and our hearts to it, which sounds cheesy. But part of the reason why we've gotten the mess we have is because of this kind of dehumanisation, lack of empathy or understanding Mm -hmm. of, of, you know, the who people are, who this is experiencing. So just one, being awake to the issue. um, And that might involve, you know, next time you see somebody who might be sleeping rough and making eye contact, smiling, saying hello. It might be, you know, buying them a sandwich or a drink if they if they want that, if they ask for it, or connecting them to services through Streetlink, which is this great app that can help you connect people up to services if they want it. 
it might be talking to your local soup kitchen or food bank to see if they need any help. But, you know, if we're really going to address the issue, it's going to have to come from policy change and top-down funding from government, I think. So I think it's also telling your local MPs and letting our elected politicians know that this is something that we care about enough to vote people in or out of. Like you you mentioned earlier, I, I think housing and homelessness hasn't been the kind of vote winner that people think, you know, pensions or the NHS might be, you know, people campaign on those platforms. But maybe we need to say now housing and homelessness needs to be the thing that means we'll vote you in or not, given your record on that. And, you know, for all of the doom and gloom of saying winter is coming and the horror of potential more deaths, we maybe do have this moment now of the pandemic where we can say, look, let's not go back. Let's move forward. Let's learn these lessons from the past and try and build back better and maybe get to a place where we don't have homelessness in the future. And that'd be nice. That would be amazing. Maeve, No Fixed Abode is available from all good bookshops. Yep, out now. And available on audiobook as well from Audible and other places. And great. And where can people find out more about what you're up to? I'm on Twitter at MaveMCC. I work at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, so you can follow them. I'm on maternity leave at the minute, but I'll be back very soon looking into more things like this. And I also make a podcast called The Tip-Off, which goes behind the stories of investigative journalism practices and tells the kind of twists and turns and tales behind that. So you can go to at Tip-Off Podcast and find out more there too. What is lockdown for, if not for listening to loads of brilliant podcasts? Oh, yeah, <laughs> so, uh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> So, Mickey. Hello. Tell me. Okay. Have you got anything exciting planned by way of the podcast? Well, I've certainly not got anything exciting planned outside of the podcast, (laughs) So, yes, I have. I chatted to Jo Milne, who you might remember from when Standard Issue was a magazine, and she has got Usher's syndrome, which meant she was born profoundly deaf, and it means that you gradually go blind over time. But a video of Joe being able to hear when she had cochlear implants for the first time went absolutely viral, and she wrote us a regular column about her journey. So she's given me an update on where she's up to and a new public health awareness campaign she's involved with. I've also got an interview with Carmen Khalil, absolute legend, who started Virago Press, which is the apple that every woman should be eating. Some great feminist literature out through Virago Press. And of course, Hannah, it's nearly November, so we're going to be talking to some men, and ahead of International Men's Day, it'd be remiss not to talk to Richard Herring, so I'm going to do that. What about you? Yes, indeed. I also have some interviews planned for International Men's Day. I shall be talking to two of the biggest stars of the internet of 2020, Olive and Mabel Cotter. Some guy's coming along as well to translate (laughs) for me. I believe his name is Andrew. He's written an excellent book, which has made me laugh and laugh and laugh this weekend. We also have, which is exciting news for me, as I'm a big Horrible Histories fan and big Ghost fan, Lawrence Rickard, who will be appearing on our men's gig cast. And it's worth me mentioning that we've also got Deliso Chaponda on there as well. Exciting. Also, I've got some things planned for Alcohol Awareness Week. I'm going to be talking about alcohol in pregnancy, which is interesting. We've got a flicking. We've got an outside the box. We're going to have a big review of the year coming up, which will be exciting, obviously. And next week, I am talking to the director and star of a really interesting film about refugees 
and Political Asylum, which is called Love Child. Loads of stuff. I love that you say the review of the year is going to be exciting, and it will. You'll be fascinating with loads of facts and stuff, but it will just be a background of me screaming into my pillow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So how do we make sure that people don't miss any of this stuff? There's a little thing they could do, Hannah. They could subscribe. Subscribe? Yeah. I've never heard that nonsense before. There's a little button on wherever you get your podcasts, and if you click that button that will say subscribe... S-U-B-S-E-R-I-B-E, then our podcast will be waiting for you nice and fresh. Let's go and have a cup of tea. Hi, Hannah here. I have a massive cup of tea in front of me because I am joined from the fair city of Manchester by comedian Kate McCabe. And we are going to be talking about the upcoming election in America. Hello, Kate. Howdy. How are you, Hannah? Yeah, I'm all right. Tell me, what tier is Manchester in? We are in tier three after a brave battle by our, our mayor, which resulted in us not getting much of what we wanted. <laughs> uh, we are in tier three. Personally, not much has changed for me because I've acted like a high alert level wiener <laughs> the whole time. Like, don't don't breathe on me. Don't touch me. You know, it's not six feet away, I say. I say like nine feet away from people if I can. That is very sensible. Now, wrong though it seems to segue from some what was genuine leadership by Andy Burnham into a question (laughs) about Donald Trump. Here is where I am on this. Through the whole summer, I was absolutely convinced that Trump was going to win again. Mm. When he got COVID, something changed and I can't work out what it was, but it kind of changed in the polls but it also kind of changed it in me and I thought this will affect him he is fallible he will be shown to be fallible in a different way than like obviously he's shown to be fallible all the fucking time but his people don't see it and now I think looking at opinion polls even though Clinton was ahead last time and Trump managed to win still the fact that the undecided group is now so tiny, or it's not necessarily undecided, undecided and third party or the don't know group is now so tiny I don't think he can win. How does that compare with how you currently feel? Oh, God, I hope you're right. I I so do. Because the thing is, the heartbreak of the Hillary thing is that Hillary had three million more popular votes. But because of the way that our democracy works, we have this electoral college that it was sort of like something that had good intentions at the Mm -hmm. start, but is actually hamstringing us as a democracy now the way that it works, it's sort of like, you know, a point for point system. And with the complications of things like high number of Democrats are doing mail-in voting as opposed to a lower number of Republicans, you know, the things that can go wrong, basically, I am bracing for the worst, Mm. but I'm really hoping to be pleasantly surprised. I have the kind of feeling, even if you know that the essay that you wrote for the school writing competition is really good and you're really proud of it, push that down. You push it down because you're like, it might not happen. Melinda Quadri might win again (laughs) this year and it won't go to me. And so I'm ready for that if it happens. But I'm really secretly hoping that Joe Biden, his name is called, and uh, he wins the metaphorical essay contest for me. Does that make sense? I I don't want to feel happy yet. No, it absolutely does. And like I say, coming from a place where I was so negative in August, September, I mean, absolutely convinced that Trump was going to win again. I actually have a pretty good record for calling how elections go. I mean, this is like the death knell of this. 
But including the fact that I did say that Donald Trump would win the last election and everyone told me I was mad and stupid to say it, and he did. So I don't know. It could be that my spidey sense is, is what's driving me, or it could be that I full-on lost my mind in 2020 and I just need something to hope for, just something desperately to hope for. Not to be so depressing, but it's like I feel so beaten down that... Mm. The hope is there. It's an ember in, in my in my in my tum tum, but I don't want to show it off yet or be too loud and proud about it. Because weirdly, I almost feel like part of it is like you have to be scared yeah. that the other candidate's going to win, or else you don't have the drive to vote. Part of you has to believe that that other candidate is a threat until the very end. Agreed. And, uh, you know, so I will keep saying like this isn't over. He could still take Pennsylvania these kind of key swing states, which is where he's campaigning over the last week. I think he's hitting like three uh, key states very, very hard, spreading COVID wherever he goes. <laughs> he has maskless rallies. I think that's partially why the tide is turning. I think if this wasn't a COVID year, he could stay on brand messaging with the normal hate and the normal horse shit kind of conspiracy theories that propel these kinds of things. And a man like him, his victory, because there's no substance, but if he can peddle conspiracy theories mm. and get people on board with that keep that froth going but when people even even the conspiracy theorists they're having friends and family die yeah you know when our hospitals are now in their third spike the hospitals are overrun and we're having to apply the rules of triage as to who can get treatment that is when you have to say this is a one-issue race it's not going well for Trump. We will get to that, the, the one issue race. I actually think the one issue is actually Trump himself. But mm. OK, you have said there, obviously, Pennsylvania, Florida, we all know always a key battleground. Pennsylvania is actually your home state. It is. Good memory. Pennsylvania is Bernie Sanders country, really, mm. in many ways, as in it's working class. And yes. so that's who he was speaking to. Do you think that that will work in Biden's favour or to his detriment? I really hope so. Without wanting to use too broad of a stroke to colour the people of my state. When we're talking about working class, there are sort of two categories that typically people kind of fall into politically. And one is the diehard unionist, a working class person, which means they appreciate social mobility. They appreciate the opportunity to work hard and achieve. But they also have been under the boot and they're able to sort of recognize when these oligarchs come in and start talking about policies that are going to affect them as lower to middle income types of people. And then there's the other type of working class where they see themselves as future rich people yeah. and they stop caring about their fellow union members. There's a Biden working class and there's a Trump working class. And I think Pennsylvania, unfortunately, has a lot of both. So, Trump, it might be actually impossible for you to remember what 2016 Kate thought about anything, given the last <laughs> four years. But tell me, overall, do you think the last four years for Trump have been worse than you were expecting, better than you were expecting, exactly the same as you were expecting? Worse, in the sense that, you know, I remember the 2016 election. I still had a day job. I hadn't gone freelance yet in, in, in my comedy and creative kind of outlets. And so there were like three days a week where I was still reporting to a day job. And my line manager would talk to me about Trump all the time. And I'd be like, please stop talking to me about Trump. This is so stressful because it's so weirdly close to happening. I can't mm. believe it would happen, but it might. And I actually developed alopecia 
right? So like I got like a bald patch on the back of my head. It's it's since grown back, but I had like Trump stress related <laughs> baldness temporarily. I had a cat that used to get that. Really? <laughs> oh, oh God, and the cat knew. Um, <laughs> it was unfortunately one of the pussies that had been grabbed. Um, so. I think everything that I thought Trump was going to be bad at, he has been bad at, but he's also caused difficult to repair damage in other very important ways to American democracy. Mm. He has, you know, in some ways criminalized the press. He's barred the press. He has Mm. made them not trusted by the American people. Like the the, the war cry of fake news is what he shouts to get out of any scrape. Mm. So nobody trusts the press. He has used the office for political gain in a way that is very visible and very transparent. And it's mind boggling to see that nobody's done anything about it. He's ignored news stories that would absolutely pin any other president to the ground, like a, like a writhing beetle under a finger, right? Like, you know, it's the Teflon Dawn. The respect that you might have for a president completely diminished. How do we get that back? How do we get back a president that says it's not okay to tweet at three in the morning a bunch of garbage conspiracy yeah, theories? Yeah, I agree. I mean, in many ways, I think it's been less bad than I was expecting because... Really? Uh, well, given... I mean, I agree with absolutely everything you said, but given my primary concern was that he was going to start a war with somebody, we have escaped that but I think where he is most dangerous, I remember having this conversation about people were saying, well, you know, if he can't cope with it or whatever, we'll end up with Mike Pence and Mike Pence is worse because Mike Pence mm. is really religious. And I was like, but no, at least Mike Pence believes in stuff. The, the danger for me with Donald Trump is that he doesn't believe in anything so he can pretend yeah. to believe in everything. And yeah. therefore, I don't think he's anti-abortion, but I think he's opportunist enough to pretend to be anti-abortion to placate those people. Yeah, I I don't think he cares enough about women to care about. So it's like if the Republicans want that to be the last gasp, which it is, they are in a flurry trying to pass loads of statewide um, anti-abortion laws and get um, ACB on the court. It's like, you know, the Republican kind of platform is coming alive through him. But you're dead right. He doesn't believe in anything except the Trump fortune. And so he hasn't governed for any of the American people. Yeah. He's governed in a way that benefits the Trumps. Everything is decided on a case-by-case basis. How is this going to impact me? He has no principles. He has oh, nothing. Oh, uh, no. That's happened with members of his own cabinet. Okay, so let's assume, just for the sake of argument, that he loses. What I find quite troubling about this whole thing is I can't think of an American election that should be such a slam dunk for the left since Roosevelt took out Hoover, to be honest. However, Roosevelt was somewhere close to a political genius. And, Mm. okay, so we're getting rid of Trump, but what we're getting is someone who... Do you watch The Wire at all? Yeah, I've seen The Wire. Okay, so I feel like he's like Stan Valchek. He's this guy who's just managed to fall into this position to like basically because everybody else wasn't wasn't available or was inappropriate or was caught up in some sort of political scandal or this happened or that Trump happened. Trump or Biden? Biden. I feel like Biden okay. is Stan Valchek. I feel like he could accidentally become the most powerful man in the world when mm. really under normal circumstances people would look at him and say... Jesus, really? Tell well, me. What's weird is that that didn't happen with our um, our nomination process. No. So tell me what 
Because no issues have been discussed at all. Uh, uh, well, no, nothing. So tell me what sort of president you would hope that Biden would be and then tell me what sort of president you think he actually might be. Okay, here's the thing. There's a lot of people who are going to say something like what I'm about to say, which is that Biden was not my first choice. But there's also a lot of people that having now watched him a bit more closely on the campaign trail, seen how he's interacted with people, seen the things that he has chosen not to do, as well as the things that he has chosen to do. Actually, I trust his judgment. You know, Eddie tried to scandal that they tried to stick on him. It's like the way that he's interacted with his son, the way that he speaks about things that he knows are maybe out of grasp, like what he's actually going to try to do, some of his main platform, besides federalize a corona approach yeah. which is what trump hasn't done so top thing federalize the corona approach right it's the united states of america not the separately floundering states of america right so he's going to unite the approach that's the big deal that's the big ticket another thing that has a lot of popularity amongst voters but that trump has not capitalized on and disagrees with is climate change oil initiatives so biden wants to make giant billion dollar investments in wind farms and solar. So basically other more climate friendly energy derivatives. And it's going to be a bigger plan than Obama's in politics world. He knows it's probably not going to happen. So it'll get chipped away, but he has real intentions to pursue environmental impact stuff. He also wants to raise the national minimum wage to $15 an hour, which is something that Trump is against, but that most of the voting populace is for. So you know, you take these blue collar workers and you take, you know, some of the states that Trump should be trying to win over on some of these policies and he's ignoring that. So mm. even if you're not a Corona voter, I think that there's a lot to like in the Biden platform, but it is. Can anybody hear the platform? Yeah. You know, Because yeah. you can't hear it over all the all the dying. Yeah. Yes. Biden is an old man. And yes, there have been some questions or how fair they are or how based in fact they are about his mental faculties. That's not something that get, that's going to go away when he gets older. So I have heard a lot of talk about how the plan is that he does a couple of years and then steps down and Kamala Harris would take over. Now, personally, I, 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 there's, there's some things about this I, I, I don't like. For a start, I don't like it here when we have a general election and then the Prime Minister changes by a vote that yeah. happens internally. I know we don't elect the Prime Minister as a country. However, we know who is going to be the Prime Minister when we mm. tick that box. So I don't like that. But also I I kind of find something intrinsically disappointing about the idea of a woman, the first woman, becoming a president via some means other than being elected by the general public. And I feel like it's something that could forever be held against her. That said, personally, she seems okay to me and she's not someone I would object to being the president, like within those realms. So for people who don't know, tell us a bit about Harris and tell us what impact you think she might have. The interesting thing about uh, Kamala Harris is that she was the favorite for a lot of people for a lot of really good reasons. And she is a California style Democrat, right? So you have a lot of uh, liberal social policies but she was also a district attorney, which is basically that state's sort of head cop. There's a lot 
not a lot, but there is a portion of the political left spectrum that doesn't like Kamala Harris because, you know, she's California's cop. She pursued jail sentences. She prosecuted people. And a lot of people in the black community would see her as sort of perhaps not ideal because America right now is having a real good think about how we prosecute certain crimes, how we punish people and justice that comes out of our justice system. And so that's a big conversation. And Kamala certainly is closer to that hot button issue than the other candidates because she's been in charge of it for so long. However, just because somebody did their job well in one regard doesn't mean that they don't also evolve on an issue. I don't think that Kamala Harris is the kind of person who doesn't want to see improvements in our justice system. I think she 100% would want to see improvements in our justice system. And I think on liberal policies, on economic policies, she is a great Democratic candidate. So I think she would do an excellent job. I mean, I don't know if you got to see any of the vice presidential debate, but I, I didn't, love her I... overall vibe. Mm. <laughs> But I 100% hear what you're saying, where it's like, it would kind of suck for us to have the first female president by default. It would be sort of like... It'd be like Veep. It's what happens in Veep. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Oh, God. And it would be like, this shouldn't have to happen by accident. But unfortunately, I am increasingly kind of thinking like, maybe it does have to happen by accident. And then people will see that women are more than capable of leading America and then that will be the suck it and see that it had been crammed down America's mm. cake hole and they can actually finally believe that actually, oh, a woman running wouldn't be a bad idea. How many female candidates did we have for our nomination? Mm-hmm. And even within the Democratic side, the one that would more likely vote for a woman, in theory, there's plenty of misogyny on the left, believe you me. Mm. But in theory, the one that would vote for a woman voted for the oldest white man. Well, you see, see, you say that, but the Labour Party in this country, the party that you would think would naturally be more in a position to have a female leader, has never been led by a woman. Mm. And the Conservative Party has been led by two. Yeah. So So it's it's odd. Well, it's odd. And it also probably goes to show that there's some cognitive dissonance on the left about how we treat our members within the Mm. own party. And there's also these expectations that the other side is always wrong and bad and not progressive and they're doing things in their own way. And the, the women that have led the conservative party, you know, it's that old feminist argument. It's like, you don't have to support every woman, Yeah, you know, but it is strange and a bit of a big lesson to learn that like the Republican or the conservative side over here, rather is the one that's put women front and center. Hmm. I mean, to be honest, I've long thought that America's first female prime minister would be a Republican. Yeah. Not yeah, prime minister, actually, president. Yeah. I get Yeah, we're, 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 we're weaving back and forth yeah. <laughs> from uh, country to country. But yeah. yeah. And here's the thing. Would I vote for her? Probably yeah. not because she'd probably have politics that, you know, that I wouldn't agree with. It would depend. I'd long for the day, Hannah, when there would be a Republican candidate that I would seriously consider. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because they since Goldwater, you know, they've they've really capitalized on fear and loathing as their uh, primary modus operandi. 
Yeah. And I don't want to vote for somebody who runs on fear and loathing. I want to vote for somebody who just has interesting and good policies. Okay, so we've got two case. Well, actually, we've got three case scenarios. The first is that one wins. The second is that the other one wins. And the third is that this gets dragged out through courts for months and months because it's really close and we end up back in a bush gore situation although that said gore gave in because not gave in i suppose gave in would be an appropriate because he was a normal human being and trump is not a normal human being so who knows what would happen there but mostly you've got the scenarios of what happens in the country if trump wins again and what Mm. happens in the country if biden wins i can see there being a lot of dissent in both cases to be honest I can see parts of the South erupting if Trump declares that he has been robbed of this. I can see parts of the Pacific Northwest erupting if Trump wins and there are claims that voting suppression happened there. So they're both equally worrying for me. Am I being melodramatic or do you think both of those things are a possibility? I think both of those things are a possibility. I wish I could say that you're being melodramatic and I hope desperately that it's a smooth transition of power to joe biden that's the ultimate ideal but here's the thing i mean i think trump is the most egocentric narcissistic idiot junk man president that we have ever had and the way that he moves and the way he reacts is the furthest removed from presidential that i've ever seen or ever would care to see so when you're saying like oh gore conceded because it was the right thing to do because he's like a normal sane person and he realized that stringing this out probably wasn't for the best that's because that's a presidential thing to do right and so trump is not a presidential man so what will happen i mean part of me hopes that the fantasy scenario is joe biden wins trump is never heard from again oh you're dreaming because because he flees the country because i think he's done so much illegal crap that like i'm thinking if he's not in office anymore he might skedaddle he will still have a twitter account though see (laughs) see, this is this is the thing i heard like i've been saying i've been listening to millions of podcasts i can't even remember which podcast this was on but I heard Steve Kornecki, who is a polling expert, talking about how the thing that he thought that people were failing to take into account was that Trump has not been presidential as a president. So how people on earth think he's going to be ex-presidential as an ex-president and that he will remain in the marketplace of ideas, that is Twitter, just winding people up. And if, if we think he's bad now... What about when he is completely off the leash, if you know well, what I mean? Well, to be honest, I mean, there is, I saw the question posed the other day, will Jack from Twitter actually grow a spine and bar him from Twitter after he's not the president anymore? Because all he does is promote misinformation. Mm. And I think, you know, even though it's not been done successfully yet, I think social media is getting to the point where they are trying to be accountable for their services. And... You know, if you if we were to kind of do like a historic study 50 years from now, like, well, what was the most influence, the biggest pivot in American politics? You could definitely look at the rise of social media because it really became easy for propaganda to take hold, whether it was homegrown or foreign based. And if Twitter, if Facebook, if other social media platforms are trying to be more accountable and Trump's no longer president, 
And so there's not this sort of special circumstance. Maybe, maybe Jack will kind of firm up his, his non-existent spine <laughs> and boot him off. Because he's, you know, he boots other people off. <laughs> uh, yeah. Kate, this has been absolutely delightful. I will probably see you on Twitter at some point on the night of Tuesday. The After absolutely. everything we just said about Twitter, I will still go yeah. there and tweet <laughs> stuff about the election because I need my head looking at Somebody's got to take out the trash. (laughs) Welcome to Rated or Dated, where this week's choice was made by my erstwhile colleague, Mickey Nonan. Mickey, what were we spending our Sunday nights doing this week? This week, we went bang, bang, ratatata, boom, as we watched 1970s war caper, Kelly's Heroes. So I'm going to start, actually, by describing the poster for Brian G. Hutton's star-studded World War II adventure. And that is a cartoon of Clint Eastwood, Don Rickles, Donald Sutherland and Telly Savalas, who play Kelly, Crap Game, Oddball and Big Joe, respectively, tooled up and ready to war while waving a flag that's actually a US dollar, And it comes with the tagline, they had a message for the army, up the brass. It looks for all the world like an ad for a carry-on flick. Carry on fighting, carry on looting, carry on acting like you're in a Western even though this is a war film. One of those. Let's talk about the plot. We are in the midst of World War II and our ragtag bunch of American soldiers get inside info from a drunk German officer that millions of dollars worth of gold is hidden behind enemy lines. I mean, I say hidden, it's in a bank. Anyway, Kelly, Clint Eastwood, a one-time lieutenant, now private, devises a plan to steal the loot for his crew. They recruit more oddballs, including the aforementioned actually called oddball, to the cause because it seems that every man has his price and probably a harmonica. Action! And it is a bold mashup of battlefield action and heist caper. Does it work? Well, maybe not necessarily as originally intended, but I think we'll touch on that in a bit. I have very few fun facts to share with you here, except it is way too long, at nearly two and a half hours, and it is the second nostalgia-nibbling military film featuring Harry Dean Stanton that I have picked for Rated or Dated. Although, interestingly, he only goes by Dean Stanton in the credits. I don't know why that is. He'd not found his Harry yet. Hannah, had you seen it before? Uh, What did you think? I hadn't seen it before, which is unusual, I think, because I grew up in a house where we watched a lot of war films Mm. and I am actually a war film fan. I'm surprised. What did I think? Oh, Mm. she just just did a, a funny face. Yeah, I didn't like it. Most of the reason I didn't like it is because I think it definitely falls into the category dated. I don't think it's a particularly good war film. The caper bit might be okay, but the war film aspect of it is really bad. And I think that's because war films, to me, should either be that 1940s things that were actually made while the wars were going on stuff, or they should come post Saving Private Ryan, which actually changed the way that war films were made in terms of realism. So, no, I didn't like it at all. I had an interesting moment at the start where I put it on my telly and the screen was black and you could just hear talking and stuff going on in the background. And I thought, oh, this is quite interesting. It's going to fade into something. 
And that went on for about three and a half minutes. And I thought, no, there's actually something wrong with this. And I had to rebuy <laughs> it off Amazon because there was clearly some sort of problem with it. So I, I saw the first three or four minutes twice. But even that said, the sound design on it is so bad that I actually had to pause it 20 minutes in and actually find out what the fuck was going on. Right. Interesting. I had no idea what was going on. And I think those first 20 minutes could essentially be lost. That could all be done in a single conversation with the German guy and they could move on from there. And actually that thing you say about being two and a half hours long, I have one fun fact about it, which is that Clint Eastwood apparently moaned that a lot of it was cut. And oh, he wow. said that he thought that it took away character development. Now, what I'm going to say is if you can't do character development in two and a half hours, you've not written a very good screenplay, mm -hmm. to be honest. What you talked about with how war films should be and what they should achieve, what I think is really interesting about Kelly's Heroes is obviously it's looking back to World War Two, but the most recent war that was still very about current... Vietnam. In, yeah, in America, certainly in our minds was Vietnam. But they haven't done it directly about Vietnam. But everyone acts like they're in Vietnam. Absolutely. It's interesting you say that because I spent ages last night trying to find which film critic or film expert it was that said the quote about Sam Peckinpah, which is that Sam Peckinpah films will always tell you more about the 1970s than they do about the period in which they're set. Mm. Because I think this is exactly a case of that. This is about Vietnam. And in particular, Oddball and his crew hippie. of people. Yeah. His hippie commune where they're all a bit... They're not all taking heroin, which they probably would have been in Vietnam. But they are all... Sort of flower kind of, power, aren't they? But there also appeared to be acting as entirely free agents, which just wasn't how America functioned <laughs> is in its army in the Second World War. They're all able to just basically abandon their posts and vanish. It's because they haven't reported that their leader has died, has been decapitated, and they've just never mentioned it. So, yeah, that's how they've got this sort of independence. But that, whether that would have happened... That doesn't stand up, though, at all. It really doesn't. I think that, like, to me, the worst... The worst aspects of it, really early on when the German guy is shot and he basically just falls on the ground. There's no blood. There's nothing. You see nothing in this. You see people being hit by bullets and then basically just jump up in the air and fall down. There's a guy who's blown up by a mine and lands all in one piece, Hannah. <laughs> exactly. That's right? not how they work. And, and okay, yeah, like I say, Saving Private Ryan changed this. One of the reasons Saving Private Ryan changed it was the noise. That noise of bullets, that mm. noise as bullets come past people's ears and stuff. I mean, obviously, this is 25 years before that. So obviously things have changed. But it just, it reminded me of the A-Team where people just spray bullets, right? And then someone just falls over. There's a bit where John Rickles, what's his character called? Crap Game. A building basically collapses and he gets hit on the head, right? <laughs> and then they t when they're actually fixing him up, it's his legs that are damaged. It's this, yeah, this I don't want to have to explain biology to you again, Hannah, but that's how it works. <laughs> things don't actually marry up at all. I found it very, very odd. Considering the amount of bullets that get shot in it, it was the least war film that I think that was set in a war that I've come across. Also, the soldiers themselves. I mean, obviously, they would have been all white. But there seems to be no diversity of, of character as such, right? They all appear to come from a rough geographic area. There would There's have like... absolutely been black soldiers in the Second World War. 
there was there was black regiments in the same way there was Japanese American regiments. Right. Okay. And actually, to be honest, they were right up front. They were actually put in the most dangerous positions. Cannon fodder. Yeah. Exactly that. Actually, if anyone is interested in in war, you should look into what happened to the the Japanese regiments during the Second World War because while they were cannon fodder. Uh, to a, a large degree, they are one of the most successful groups that there was because they were fearless in a way that perhaps a lot of, of other regiments weren't. I think partly because they felt like they had something to prove because mm. their relatives at home were all locked up in camps. So yeah. they really needed to prove that they were for America. So there's some really interesting stuff about that. So none of them kind of struck me as soldiers at all. No, there was there was no working class accents. There was no southerner at all. Somebody was from New York, but everybody else seemed to be from like that generic California accent, which was I thought a bit weird. It felt quite Bilko, Sergeant Bilko to me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Agreed. And also there's a bit where and like I say, it's it's unfair because I'm comparing it to stuff that actually is done incredibly well. Like, for example, Band of Brothers, which is certainly television's best war film in that sense. Or not war film. Such like a long a, film, Hannah. <laughs> it's like a 10 part thing. But there's a bit where they get they, they, they come under what's now known as friendly fire. And so one of those soldiers says, oh, is this what we pay our taxes for? Now, that seems a very 1970s concern moved into like the 1940s. I would have thought... Is this what we're risking our life for? Would have been a way more. Well, um, that leads quite neatly onto some stuff I wanted to say, actually, because I think that the taxes thing brings the idea and indeed the character of money to the forefront. Mm. So, with the caveat that it is an extraordinarily overlong film for such a one goal movie, and that goal is getting to the gold. And the blowing things up to move forward quickly becomes incredibly tedious. I was I was bored for the majority of this. I do think it's aged interestingly in a way that maybe they couldn't have predicted. And it's become more of a satire than maybe it was meant to be at the time. So there's a real spirit of Catch-22 and the madness of war mm. there. They're just trying to get on with daily lives and being these characters amid like, there's one guy who properly has a breakdown. He's like... Why are you coming at me? What are you doing? Why are you blah, blah, blah? And he's like, look, I'm not I'm not here to cause you trouble. But that that high sort of tension of war and what it can do to people. And I think by moving the goalposts so that our motley crew are risking their lives not for war under orders from unseen higher ups, but in fact to line their own pockets under their own steam, it raises questions about the morality of war and the morality of men. So when you're fighting the enemy soldiers and they're dying because it's all part of the big war cause you kind of get forgiven for those deaths right but if you're doing it just to get some cash or some gold then where's the morality there and i thought i thought that was quite interesting and also that is is interesting because the argument like the only good nazis are dead nazi which is like currently very 2020 argument if that's what you were going for and the fact that your justification for it was that you, well, it didn't matter why you were killing Nazis, killing Nazis was a good thing, is that they actually let a Nazi go at the end because he helped them get money. Well, this so Big Joe has to convince the German officer guarding the building to let them blow open the bank. And his words are, I think, a really interesting meditation on the morality of war. He says, look, Matt, you and us, we're just soldiers, right? We don't even know what this war's all about. All we do is we fight and we die. And for what? We don't get anything out of it. 
the implication is, but if you help us, you get a share of that gold mm. and you get something out of it. And yeah. he, he's swayed. And I, th- mm. I, I, I thought, I mean, obviously it's still way too long and I, w- I was genuinely bored, but I did think that was quite an interesting idea that kept coming up and coming up and maybe they didn't mean that when they made it. Maybe it's had more light shone upon it because it's of the aging process. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's a bit where obviously they, the, the, the higher ups do become aware of what they're doing, but they aren't aware of why they're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And the interesting thing about that is at one point, the big the big cheese says that these people have saved the reputation of the whole army, which is an outrageous statement to make, given <laughs> other Americans were pinned down in Belgium in the most extreme circumstances. And, and yet, like just some guys running with it. it they're basically me, pirates, aren't they? They're just exactly pirates. that. It strikes me as someone who who because apparently the story behind this is is based on something that was found in the Guinness Book of Records, a statement in the Guinness Book of Records that the biggest bank heist ever happened during the Second World War when some soldiers did take a bank. And apparently, the guy that wrote this got in touch with the McWater. Is it Norris? Is yeah, it Norris, Norris that did the Guinness yeah. Book of Records. Oh, right, got in Norris. touch with him and said, "What more do you know about it?" And Norris McWater said. Not much, actually, which suggests that probably it did happen and that the information has been suppressed, right? Mm -hmm. And this guy apparently investigated it for nine years. But it seems to me that his primary interest is in the gold heist and that he has little to no experience. I might be wrong. Little to no experience of actually being in the army. But like you say, it is boring. I spent a, a phenomenal amount of time wondering whether I would or would not fuck Oddball. And that is not what you should be doing watching this <laughs> film, right? You came down on yes, right? I came That's down on, I came, to be honest, Mickey, I came down on I probably already have in another incarnation, to be honest. <laughs> Donald Sutherland's having the whale of his life, isn't he? He's he having is, a lovely but time. But there's just like I say, there's... All of the extras in this are appalling, which is worth mentioning. All of it. There's two things that really jumped out at me, and you've seen it recently enough that I hope you remember this. The first is the two Germans that talk to each other. They don't bother translating what it is they're actually saying, so you just have to guess what the Germans are saying to each other. But one of them says something, Mm -hmm. and the other German just goes and shrugs in the most ridiculous fashion. It's so ridiculous. And the other one is when they first kick off in the town, when it all first kicks up, a guy wakes up in a bed, is woken. And he just, it's the worst acting I've ever seen. It's like unbelievably bad. <laughs> There's a couple of dodgy lines as well, I think. About uh, raping the nurses. Oh, the, I mean, I was going to say for like, it wasn't funny, but that's that's more horrific. Yeah, that's horrible. And I was, I've written, shall we talk about the women in this film? <laughs> <laughs> there aren't any what a choice i made but there's a bit where crap gamer says this place is like fort knox yeah the place where the gold is kept <laughs> the, <laughs> the place where the gold is kept is like this other place where the gold is kept mm. yeah there's also some at the end all the french people run out with what appear to be pre-made signs that say liberation which yes. makes me laugh a lot or liberation I've had this since the French Revolution. Just looking for another excuse to get it out, mate. <laughs> I, I told you we shouldn't have sold it in the uh, car boot sale. Look what's happened now. We've been liberated and we haven't got any way to celebrate it. Although, if we've got time, fun story here. There was a thing in in life that if I, I, that my dad couldn't get through the story, right? You know when there are just things that tickle you? Uh-huh. And when Saddam Hussein was ousted, 
you know, when they pulled the statue down and they're all hitting it with the shoes. I have seen this footage. Apparently they cut to the crowd who are going wild, right? And some people are holding American flags. Now, where they've got them from, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But some people are waving American flags. But one guy is holding a full cardboard cutout of Sylvester Stallone in Rambo. <laughs> <laughs> And it's just so incredible. It's like that, you know, when uh, Stephen uh, Stuart Lee's got all that material about how somebody left uh, a blow-up ET outside Kensington Palace when Princess Diana died. (laughs) And it's just how that person came to have that is a way, almost as good a story as the fact that the Saddam Hussein statue got pulled down to me. It's, It's very funny. Okay, so I think we should wrap up this rated or dated so we can go and write that screenplay, Hannah. (laughs) Absolutely. There is one thing that I really loved in this, and I get the feeling it was a balls up by Don Rickles and they left it in because it's funny. And it's when he he refers to something as for cook to Mimi, right? (laughs) Which is a mashup of the Yiddish word for cuckta or for cacta, right? And the word cockamimi. And it's just funny. Say it again, for Cocktamimi. For Cocktamimi, he calls it. I like it. it. And I think, I think, like I say, I think, I, unless somebody specifically wrote that, that line, in which case it is quite a good line. But the way he pronounces it, it strikes me as somebody thought he said it and afterwards they went, oh, what's he said there? He was supposed <laughs> to say Cocktamimi. For Cocktam is means fucked, I think, essentially in Yiddish. It doesn't. It means something politer than that. But the effect is much the same. Yeah, I feel I feel bad, Mick, because the last two films that you've picked, I haven't liked at all. I mean, in fairness, we've still got me to pick another four films that are dreadful before we're anywhere near Coyote Ugly levels. So, you know, (laughs) I think it's fine. I didn't like it either, Hannah. I was very bored. But there's been quite a lot to say. I found lots of it interesting. But would I watch it again? No. And I do think it's dated. But I also think it's dated quite interestingly. What are we watching next time? Well, I thought, um, given timing's good on two things, uh, it is currently October, it'll be November when it comes out, I think, uh, is the 80th anniversary of the original film of Rebecca. And now there is a remake of Rebecca that is on Netflix that I haven't seen and I'm not likely to see. I thought we could watch the original and see what we made of it. Look at you, goody two-shoes, choosing films about women. <laughs> I know, I know. It's for cockamimi. It sounds like a delicious soup. <laughs> Standard Issue for All Women. <laughs>